What's going on, everybody? This episode of the Unusual Whales Pod was recorded live on Wednesday, September 7th. Our hosts, along with a panel of the brightest minds in oil and energy, explore the energy crisis, the oil market, and the notion of an impending European doom. I'll just do a quick intro for all the speakers. Um, if anyone uh, wants to plug anything, please feel free to do. Uh, we'll pin anything you guys plug at the top of the space. Um, and so we have a lot of questions, so let's kind of start. So the first person is uh, Wall Street Silver. Uh, he's a commodities and metals expert. He has an incredible YouTube channel you should already be following. Uh, and he's the founder of the subreddit Wall Street Silver. Uh, welcome, uh, Silver. Got anything? Um, thanks for inviting me, and uh, I will be listening and speaking. I'm also on a Zoom call sporadically during the spaces, so I might not always be listening, but when I am between calls, I will be chiming in. Sweet. Uh, we'll just keep going down the list. Uh, you know, Doomberg, no space really is complete without him. Uh, you know, he's well known for his incredible insight into commodity trading. Uh, he was the first to highlight disparities in food production. Uh, in the rolling uh, Euro problems. Uh, he has an excellent, excellent, excellent Substack newsletter you should subscribe to. Uh, super affordable. Uh, welcome, Doomberg. Got anything to plug? Yeah, thank you. I, I would say early, not first. <laughs> I wouldn't claim to be first in anything, but uh, certainly been writing about the, the situation in Europe for a long time. I just posted our latest piece called uh, Europe on Tilt in the Nest. Thanks for having me. It's always great to join um, spaces with such great guests and, and looking forward to a robust uh, Q&A. Awesome. I, yeah, I, I guess first is not the uh, the correct term, but you, we'll see how far anti-logic goes. Definitely the first group <laughs> chicken to call it out. I'll, I'll take that. Precisely. Um, uh, going down the list here, we have uh, Amina uh, Backer. Uh, she really needs no introduction. She's the chief for OPEC uh, correspondent and the deputy bureau chief for energy intel, uh, which is incredible. You should read it. Uh, she was previously at Reuters. Uh, welcome, Amina. What do you have to, uh, to to plug, if anything? Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, very glad to be joining you today and uh, looking forward to uh, your questions, especially anything related to OPEC. Sweet. We have Abby here. Abby, uh, like his uh, name and Twitter handle suggests, <laughs> uh, Raj Energy. You should follow him. All, it's all things energy. Uh, he focuses on politics at Energy Intel and is a scholar at Columbia University uh, in their Department of Energy. Uh, welcome, uh, Abby. Have anything to, to plug? Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, no, nothing particular to plug. Uh, you know, uh, my colleague Amena and, and, and I kind of cover uh, all different swaths of the energy space, um, but also spend a lot of time kind of looking at the macro and, and, and kind of the knock-on effects from, from, from energy issues to, to other sectors. So, Looking forward to the discussion. Sweet. Uh, and I think uh, Tracy and Josh will be joining shortly. I just spoke to them over DMs. But we have one more who is Oil Mutt. Uh, Oil Mutt uh, is kind of burgeoning on the, the Twitter space. Uh, he's an avid wildcat, uh, as he calls himself, uh, who's uh, been kind of really uh, joining a lot of oil spaces, really speaking a lot. Uh, and we're super uh, looking forward to his expertise on the U.S. markets uh, in Texas, uh, Texas specifically. Uh, Oil, got anything to plug? No, I'm just happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's kind of like start off with an open-ended question for the entire panel. Um, I, I would say this is the topic that brings us here. There are nonstop discussions about Europe being uh, doomed. Uh, the Financial Times has said there's virtually no way for Europe to escape a Europe-wide recession, primarily due to its energy woes. Today, the EU proposed a mandatory target for reducing electricity at peak hours uh, in order to flatten the curve. I, I'm su I suppose we've heard that before. So kind of let's start with uh, Doomberg here, um, based off your great uh, piece yesterday about Europe being on tilt. Uh, is Europe truly doomed for a dark winter? Uh, what are you saying? I, I, so it all depends on what you call, you know, a catastrophe, I would argue, um, the rolling bailouts of basically the entire utility sector over the weekend um, is an epic catastrophe. If we had predicted that this would occur a year ago, you would have been called crazy. Right? Um, and so sometimes I think we get deadened to the news cycle. Um, 10 billion here, 65 billion there, um, 130 billion pounds uh, in the UK and another you know, 40 on top of it. 
you're literally talking about bailouts of uh, five to seven percent of uh, the United Kingdom's GDP. Um, at what point do we just say um, the question of whether there will be a crisis has been answered? The crisis is here. Um, the only real consideration is what is the very best path forward? How can we minimize the damage? Um, and then once we get through it, I mean, look, I don't think everyone in Europe is going to die. Um, I think we're heading into a period of severe economic dislocation. Um, there's going to be substantial suffering amongst the people in Europe who are at least capable of absorbing such suffering. Um, when we get through to the other side, uh, one hopes that we have an honest um, after action report to understand um, how it is that we allowed ourselves to be put in such a situation. And when I say our, I'm sort of speaking broadly for the Western world, um, Europe, US, Canada, um, sort of five eyes. Um, and um, what should we do to make sure it never happens again? Um, I, I, but the one thing that is amazing to me, and I just retweeted your tweet, um, unusual whales, uh, of Janet Yelling saying, Janet Yelling out today, um, saying that the U.S. must wean itself off fossil fuels as if that's even possible. Um, it's, we, we keep looking for the moment when we say, aha, the political establishment gets it. Uh, we're nowhere near that. Uh, the political establishment is utterly incoherent, totally dysfunctional, uh, really ignorant uh, of the root causes that got them here. And as long as they still have power and they don't seem willing to uh, relinquish said power anytime soon, the situation can only get worse. Uh, how can Janet Yellen be saying today of all days that her main priority is weaning the U.S. off fossil fuels when more fossil fuels is the obvious and only answer to the problem before us today? Um, the crisis has not yet reached their shores um, in their um, elevated purchase. And so until it does, um, expect more of the same. So that, that's my own answer. Uh, perfect. That, that's, uh, that's great. Does the panel have anything... Uh, to add on that point itself, um, you know, a lot of people on FinTwit are saying that the European energy crisis is kind of overblown. Um, I believe, uh, I, I don't know, I'm not sure if you guys know the macro trader, Andreas Steno. Um, he has this, uh, he wrote this whole thread yesterday saying that there's a myth of Russian energy markets being much stronger uh, than they actually are. Uh, energy and Intel, you guys just wrote a great piece about how Gazprom is... Uh, using this crisis to their advantage. Maybe, Abby, uh, do you want to speak about people underestimating or overestimating this crisis? Sure, yeah, I'll just add a couple of quick points. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's, it's nuanced because, you know, back to your question on, you know, is, is this sort of Europe doomed um, this winter? Um, I, think it's, I, think, I think Europe was probably going to be, uh, you know, less doomed than, than, than what is kind of being talked about and feared, um, especially from, you know, from, you know, kind of keeping uh, heat on and things like that. Um, but I think, I think a, a big reason for that is that they're pretty doomed now. Um, and, and, and things are pretty bleak, especially in the manufacturing uh, industrial sectors and uh, in, 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 in countries uh, like Germany and others that are more exposed to Russian gas and kind of on the Eastern side of, of, of Europe. So, so I, I think things are pretty bad already. Um, and, and as a result, you know, maybe they will have sort of enough gas that things aren't as bad as, as, as kind of the, the, you know, the, the, the worst case scenarios in the winter. Um, but, but things are still going to be uh, quite bad. And, you know, and I think, uh, you know, as, as, as Doomberg pointed out, I think just, just kind of, you know, trying to fix everything with these, you know, huge, um, you know, stimulus and, 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 and kind of bailout packages, uh, which, only kind of add further burdens to the taxpayer are only going to kind of defer, uh, you know, problems to, to, to later. Uh, so, so that, that's one point. I think the other point is, and, and, and Amena may want to chime in on from, from, from the uh, piece that we recently wrote, but um, I mean, I think, I think there are, I think from the Russian standpoint, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are, um, uh, uh, benefits to the situation that they are reaping. Um, but there are also, you know, kind of, you know, some structural and longer term problems that, um, that they are creating for themselves, which they can't get out of. And, and that's kind of, you know, dependent on, on which market you're talking about. I think oil being more fungible, um, you know, they can, they can kind of re-divert those flows uh, easier 
um, uh, into India, China, and other markets, and and then kind of make whole. Um, and then when you know Western countries try certain things like price caps and whatnot, withholding supply will will kind of help to 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 make up for uh, for revenue. Uh, but I think it's a different picture on the gas side. Uh, I think gas is is it is there are you know if you want if they want to make a pivot, it's going to take longer, and there are structural issues, uh, and 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 it's harder to to kind of displace. Uh, the European market and just kind of pivot to a different market. So, so from that standpoint, I think I think it's it's more nuanced. But uh, but either way, I mean, I think I think Europe is in for for an, you know an extremely tough uh, not just the next couple of months, but um, potentially the next couple of years uh, from from an economic and even just kind of a financial uh, crisis standpoint. Uh, Mena, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add. Yeah, no, I just wanted to add, um, basically, I mean, the, the main question here, are we facing an energy crisis? Absolutely, yes, we're facing an energy crisis. And this has been happening uh, for a few years now. And it's partly or largely due to the huge lack of investment uh, in the upstream sector. Um, there has been a kind of misperception uh, in, in a lot of the Western states that they can get to net zero without having uh, a plan, without having milestone, skipping phases in between. Um, that's more of a kind of like of the political statements uh, that uh, that they tell people. But in when we're, we're looking at practical results, we need oil and gas today. We'll need it tomorrow. We'll need it in five years and we'll need it in a decade. And the oil and gas sector is a sector that you need to invest in uh, for, uh, for, for long periods of time. You need billions of dollars and it takes years to uh, develop capacity. Um, right now, I can see, I mean, from, from in terms of the, inve- the, the investment side, the only countries that are uh, really expanding their capacities are, are here in the Gulf or the Saudi Arabia and, uh, and the UAE. Um, so, and these states here have, have also been calling for more investment to avoid an even, you know, more severe energy crunch in the future. So underinvestment and upstream is something key that we need to highlight in this energy crisis. Uh, Josh, I would love to get your perspective on this. I mean, Bison Interest has been around for, for I guess, two th- since 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and your whole um, uh, ability to navigate the space and find these underrepresentative gems uh, that have some upstream capabilities um, uh, kind of goes on parallel. So I'd love to know what your perspective on what Amina is saying here is. Is there a truly an energy crisis? Uh, please. And welcome uh, to the space. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, nice to nice to be here. I appreciate it. And uh, there, there are some great other uh, panelists on. It's, it's really interesting to hear, hear them talk to. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we uh, see significant underinvestment um, you know, that's been going on for years, uh, partly driven by this sort of uh, narrative of oil and gas to a lesser extent going away, which is clearly not the case. Um, and I think in terms of Europe in particular this winter, I, I think it's hard, right? So there is a lot of pain that's being experienced, um, but there was also uh, obvious in retrospect uh, a blow-off top in natural gas prices, and and the price that natural gas in Europe got to last week was a, a price that just they weren't able to bear and in, incurred significant demand destruction. So lots of pain. Um, not all of that pain has been filtered through um, or felt yet by consumers, by the relevant governments, and so on. And so I think I think it's going to be pretty bad but also not sort of, uh, I, I mean, it's not like a mass starvation event or anything like that, at least so far uh, with fertilizer plants off, maybe uh, there, there ends up being a food issue too, but, um, but maybe not doomsday, but also uh, definitely not uh, just normal business uh, as usual. So uh, there is an energy crisis. It is driven. I think I agree with Amanda that uh, there's been underinvestment for many years. I think it's been driven by this sort of bizarre narrative like Dubert was talking about. Um, and, and I do think it's important that the right story is told um, because it, it matters in terms of uh, emerging from the crisis that we're going into, as well as um, hopefully avoiding having the same problem. And if, if the if the narrative is inconsistent with the facts, there's a, a real risk that we end up with a prolonged crisis or repeat crises. 
All right. If I sound acceptable now, can I get that quick check? You sound great. Thank God. All right, folks, I'm going to take over from here. Thanks, Will, for being the trooper that you are. All right. So, uh, Silver, are you still here, my man? I'm going to mention, you know, significant underinvestment besides Middle East and a lack of vision with net zero. What are you seeing on your end? Is there a crisis? I'll kick that over to Doomberg. Looks like Silver might be busy with his Zoom call here. Yeah, I think. You know, the, the, the way in which we got here is interesting. Um, it's a combination of, I think, uh, underinvestment, like we've spoken about, but to be fair, of course, a lot of capital was incinerated in the shale patch. And then the third contributing factor un undoubtedly was the shutdown of um, the economy, basically, in March of 2020, and the resulting rolling series of bankruptcies, uh, predominantly in, in sort of U.S. shale and uh, the companies that emerged from those uh, court supervisory organizations uh, have a much sharper focus on cash flow versus growth. And um, we're seeing sort of depleting of, of inventories of, of drilled and uncompleted wells. We're seeing uh, a strong desire to capitalize on the high prices by um, capturing the value with, uh, with price and not volume, um, a lot more discipline than the market anticipated and a lot slower growth. And so you know, when you put all those three things together, um, we find ourselves in this crisis. And then the question, of course, as we've been talking about is, is what to do to get out of it. Um, you know, back to this question, I just want to say, um, I think what's going on in Europe today behind the scenes um, is far more traumatic from an economic perspective than it is being sort of, um, than how it's being portrayed in the Western media. I think over the weekend, once Putin shut down the flows to Nord Stream 1. Um, this forced bailout of the utility sector, we believe is a backdoor bailout of the European banking sector. The analogy we used um, in a different um, forum was that this is sort of the equivalent of bailing out AIG to save Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Um, there's a big time financial crisis. The contagion of this energy crisis in Europe is just beginning. This is not sort of contained to subprime to borrow language from the last uh, global financial crisis. We see the Japanese yen weakening substantially today. Luke Groman was out with a tweet earlier, which I concur with, which is this is um, going to make put the Fed in a very interesting spot um, with respect to their plans for uh, interest rate hikes and, and QT. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it took an obscure part of the residential mortgage market in 08 to really catalyze a rolling series of contagion. Uh, it's not clear to me that um, while we won't see, you know, millions of people uh, shivering around um, fires of their furniture this winter in Europe, um, what's going on right now in Europe does does potentially, it sure looks a lot like the beginning of a contagion. So we'll kind of circle back to that. And I do want to get on to the topic of policy and regulation of bailouts in 2008 and the comparisons to now. But first, oil mud. A lot of people speak about underinvestment and the current inventories in oil. What are you seeing, especially here in the United States and Texas especially? How's America navigating this energy crisis, in your opinion? There's, there's a lot of private money flowing in, but the problem we're running to now is labor and uh, manufactured goods. Uh, the the plugging, plugging wells has become highly profitable because they're reselling the, the used tubulars now. It's so hard to get price tubing and everything else. And then the crews, you're seeing it with the uh, rig counts, frack spreads. It's just you can't get the skilled labor needed to put it on. And everything is so expensive right now. They're, they're dropping these rigs because they're just not efficient enough. So it's the money is coming, but it, we don't have the ability right now. Uh, I'm on a 60-day wait for a rig as we speak to drill a well. That's the soonest. And oh, I've, wow. offered, I've offered bribery. I've done everything. And they said, guess what? 20 other guys in front of you have done the same thing. You just got to wait. If you have a well go down right now and you need a pull rig, you can wait six weeks. So you're literally could be losing <clears throat> thousands of dollars a day in production right now waiting on rigs. And it all goes back to crews. Uh, the labor, we've had guys get laid off, you know, roughly 10 years ago, then 2014 and 2020. And a lot of guys just, they've gone into other things. 
they're very smart engineers and things of that nature, and they found other ways to make money outside of oil and gas. So uh, I'd say the labor is the number one issue we're having right now, along with two-wheeler goods. Uh, Valves are real hard to get a hold of right now. It's just, it's a nightmare. So it's, we're bottlenecked right now for sure. Yeah, uh, something that Whale shared earlier, some stats that he pushed out, the federal acres leased for oil and gas production during the first 19 months are the lowest they've ever been under Biden. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of a, a suicide mission to lease federal right now because you have no idea what they're actually going to do. Are they going to halt you in six months? Uh, they They can approve a permit, but then they can slap you with so much other red tape, whether it be an endangered lizard or there's a million ways to get you on federal and just federal is not smart, especially if you need a pipeline. If, if, if you, if you're going to encounter gas or anything like that, and you need pipelines, uh, federal, you're in trouble getting it approved. So it's, it's just not attractive right now. There's, there's no faith in this current administration to, to take that on. Really. It's just too big of a liability. Right. And, and all of this, of course, Kind of leads to OPEC plus. Uh, Amina, you said that the 100K cut won't really impact physical volumes to the market, but it does send a signal to the markets that OPEC plus is serious about cuts. Why is this signal important, especially in this background? Um, at this point, I mean, OPEC plus is seeing that there's a kind of disconnect uh, between fundamentals and what we're seeing it um, with with prices. Um, you saw the Saudi energy minister, he criticized the level of volatility that we're seeing in the market. And he said uh, a lot of news that's coming up now, it's uh, it's it's swaying uh, prices either on the, the bearish on the bullish side. Um, for OPEC plus, I mean, just traditionally, they like to manage this volatility. They don't like prices swaying in either direction. And it's not about defending a price range, as, uh, as, as a lot of people have uh, have been claiming. Uh, it's more about reducing volatility. So to them, they wanted to break that kind of psychological barrier that they can't go back uh, to the cuts Um uh, I mean, as you mentioned, a hundred a hundred thousand uh, barrels a day isn't much. It's not it's not going to impact physical markets at all. But um, it does send that signal that if uh, more cuts are are necessary, that they're prepared to do it and in different forms. And when they say different forms, I mean that also includes the possibility of a of a unilateral cut. Um, that will depend. I mean, what happens next, really, in their their next meetings is going to depend on many things. Uh, of course, on demand uh, supply fundamentals, but they're also going to uh, they're waiting to see what happens with these uh, Russian price caps. Uh, nobody really knows the impact on uh, on the market um so uh yeah for for now i uh, it's it's very hard to tell what their future policy is going to look like but they want to keep all their options on the table and their message to the market is that uh they are serious about cuts and they will go back uh, if uh, if required Thank you so much. Uh, Josh Abian Doomberg, uh, she just mentioned the volatility. So I'd love to get your opinions on risks in the energy markets right now. A lot of people claim that political leaders in Taiwan, China, COVID policies and demand destruction will change physical markets significantly. If we're in an energy crisis now, what is the market not currently pricing in? Let's uh, let's start with Abi. Sure. Um so I mean I think I think there's yeah there's a couple of points to highlight. I mean I, I would I would you know I think I would go back to you know a point that the Doomberg made which he can expound on which is which is that I I think you have you know kind of under the scenes you know you have you know financial you know credit um, and, and 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 kind of contagion from from those sort of crises. Um, uh, uh, you know, kind of spreading in different parts of the world, whether it's Japan or, you know, for obviously Europe, um, but also, you know, kind of to, to peripheral markets. Um, you know, China COVID is, is you know, they, they, it's, it's kind of a, uh, an, an ongoing saga. Um, and, and obviously it, it, it matters and, 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 and depresses demand. But, um, but I think there's just, I think, I think, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the global, 
kind of economy is sick in many different ways. Um, and, and certainly energy and, and food crises are at the center of it. Um, and I think, I think that's, that's kind of spilt over to, to, to oil. Um, and you, you, you're kind of seeing it in, um, in other, uh, uh commodities and, and, and kind of freight and, and, and other indexes as well. Um, I don't think, I don't think there's, you know, I, I think, I think, I, I think we're just kind of in for, you know, pretty choppy and, and uncertain and, and, and problematic kind of run in, uh, to to the end of the year, um, I don't think there's really any way to get around that. Um, and I, I, you know, and, and you know, we've always had a view that you know from the spring that you know you're going to have prices rip and there's going to be all this volatility, um, and that the year was basically just going to sort of end in a really messy and and, and ugly way. Um, and it seems like that's that, that's kind of playing out a little bit earlier than we expected. So I, I think you know I don't think you know, this is kind of a dynamic that, that OPEC plus can really control. I don't think it's a dynamic that anybody can really control because the, you know, even though, you know, even though consumption and demand may not, you know, come off by much, it, it doesn't usually even in, you know, even in like the 0809 crash crisis. Um, but, you know, kind of participation in the market and, and um, you know, and, and, and kind of, you know, that, that, that speculative length just has just disappeared. Um, and I just don't see that coming back over the short term unless price prices really go down. Um, there's all these, you know, kind of unknowns around the corner, like the oil embargo, the price cap, the, you know, USSPR slowdown. A lot of them are, are, are kind of supportive of prices. Um, but, but a lot of the dislocation from these things, uh, you know, also leads to, to demand and, 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 and economic problems, which, you know, which, 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 which is the offset. So, so I think, I think that's the challenge, um, that, that the market is dealing with right now. And, you know, it, it's hard to get, it's hard to get super excited about demand, even though there are so many supply problems uh, around the corner. Thank you much. Josh, would you agree? What risks do you see that the market isn't pricing in properly? Yeah, so I think I have a little bit of a different view on what's going on with OPEC than uh, Amanda and Abi. Um, I, I think they're close to out of their spare capacity and have thought that for a little while. And, and they've, uh, over time, as they sort of had this deal over the last 18 months, they've materially underproduced relative to their quota. And so what I think is happening here um, is more related to their ability to actually produce anywhere close to their current quota levels. Um, and, and obviously, if they can't produce their quota levels and their quotas are less than what they claim is their spare capacity, then, then they may not be able to produce that as well. Um, and so I think there's a lot of pressure on them to reduce their production um, as they're, it looks like, producing at their maximum or maybe even overproducing from some of their fields. Um, there's a lot of evidence of this in terms of the number of additional jack-up rigs and other uh, sort of expensive premium equipment that Aramco and others are, um, are leasing right now, as well as their very aggressive efforts to ramp up shale development um, and other sorts of things that, that are not sort of ideal to develop. So shale is very water intensive and you kind of need fresh water generally to, to frack with. And so Saudi Arabia obviously is not an ideal, the, the desert is not an ideal place to go and try to, to frack. So I think, I think there's sort of a, a capacity issue and there's various different um, ways to triangulate towards that. And so um, when you think about what's going to happen next for Europe and for the world, um, with less natural gas available in Europe, uh, they're shifting to some extent to using oil and oil-related products to generate power and likely also to generate heat. Um, to the extent that demand isn't destroyed, it may shift. And as there's a call for oil, um, I'm not sure that there's enough oil production, especially as the strategic petroleum reserve release winds down and especially as people are, are heading back into the office to work. Um, so I think, I think there's a, actually a risk that we end up materially undersupplied. I know it's like crazy to say this on a day where WTI oil is down more than 5% on the day. Um, but again, I think, I think we end up seeing two-way volatility in sort of extreme circumstances. And I, I, I see a risk of oil going a lot higher in an undersupplied environment and, and this uh, crisis may be accentuating that. 
Thank you much. There was a, a little bit extra there um, compared to some other views we've heard so far. So I want to kick this back to Abi and Amina. Uh, what do you think of Josh's differences in view here? Do you agree uh, with his views on material undersupplies? No, I agree with him on the fact that spare capacity is tight. I mean, nobody could argue that within the OPEC plus group we're estimating. I mean, there are only, again, two countries that hold spare capacity, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And between them, um, they have around 2.5 million barrels a day. So is there spare capacity in, um, in, in the group? Yes, there still is, but it's uh, it's thin. Um both countries have shown um, no intention that they plan to max out uh, their uh, their capacities. Um, I mean, especially at balances, just looking at the last OPEC report, it shows by the end of this year, there's going to be a surplus of, uh, of around 400,000 barrels. So just looking on the balances side there, it isn't really required for them to, to, to max out uh, their uh, their capacities and their argument as well. If they do max out to their capacities, if Saudi Arabia does go to 12 million barrels a day and the UAE goes to 4 million barrels a day, that would send panic into the market again um, because you'll have zero spare capacity. And that, I mean, the, the, the increase in production won't really counter high oil prices. It might increase them even more. So this is an argument they've been um, saying uh, uh, over here. Um, but Saudi Arabia's ability to reach 12 million barrels a day, it's been proven before. April 2020, they did it. Uh, it was for a short period of time. It wasn't uh, for for months or anything, but they are capable of, of sustaining uh, that level. And uh, Aramco, I mean, you can just see from its, uh, its, its financial, recent financial reports, it has the financial means to, uh, to support such an increase Increase. They have the infrastructure, the redundancies, the export capacities. So it's it's very possible for them to, to ramp up uh, fast. Uh, but for now, I think, I mean, for them, for both these countries, spare capacity these days is more valuable than actual production. It's political leverage. I mean, there's a reason Biden came to, uh, to Saudi Arabia. I mean, uh, so these countries will hold on to that spare capacity for now. Yeah, Thank I'll you, Abi. Do you have any extra points to add? Yeah, I mean, I'll, just, I'll just quickly add that I, I actually do agree with with Josh's view on kind of the two way volatility because I think, um, you know, it's just I think it's just a it's just a question of timing. Um, I think over the short term, you know, we're we're just sort of scratching the surface of of, of kind of the the economic fallout, not just in Europe but 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 in different kind of major economies. So. Um, you know, and I think I think you know for the for the U.S. I think we you know we kind of skirt by with, you know, you can call it recession, stagflation, whatever. But I think we kind of skirt by with, um, you know, without too much damage. But but in places like Japan and other areas, I think um, I think there are you know kind of larger systemic risks. And I think uh, I think just kind of the, the the broader market is only just you know kind of you know sniffing that out now. So so I'm still you know pretty cautious on the near term. Um, but I, I I agree that. You know, you know, looking at next year, we expect, you know, to see, you know, 110, 120, um, you know, if not higher uh, oil prices again, because I think that volatility does come back as some of those supply issues um, resurface and and when demand kind of picks back up. Um, but I think I think that's just deferred to a little bit later, um, you know, over the short term, I think, you know, our views are that the kind of the EU oil embargo is um, is, is, is going to go, uh, is going to basically flop and I'm not going to go anywhere close to, uh, as planned. Um, and, and, and kind of similarly with, with kind of this oil price cap plan, I just don't see how that really, um, uh, you know, comes to fruition in any, in, in any effective way. So, um, you know, so, so the SBR is, is kind of the, the, the one big thing that, 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 um, that I think will will make a difference, and then we'll be, you know, we could be talking about more SPR releases next year, as opposed to you know they're trying to refill the SPR. Um, and just one one last point I wanted to add, um, you know, kind of back to some of the points that we were talking about earlier around underinvestment and kind of the messaging. I mean, I think, you know, to, to me, one of the, the the biggest issues I see is, you know, yes, you know, we're you know policymakers are trying to sort of you know you know suppress demand and, and and make it go down and lower consumption the name of net zero and whatnot um but especially in the u.s i mean I, I think there's just not a proper understanding that that you know in any kind of a you know kind of a global um you know oil uh you know balance picture over the next 5 10 15 years that 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 we need to try to encourage as much domestic supply growth as possible for oil and for gas right obviously gas lng um is, is sort of taking shape but but for oil too 
um, it's just like it's just critical, uh, you know, for for um, you know for 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 where demand um, will will try to go to, uh, you know, for for the U.S. to supply. So, um, but I think that. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 mismatch in messaging is is going to last for, for for some time, um, and and add to that volatility, um, and or at least keep it around for a while. Thank you both so much, Tracy. Thanks for joining. I want to get you in here on this discussion as well. Do you think, you think we reach some reach material, material undersupplies under when, when WTI is, is down on the day? Well, I think first of all, you have to look at what open interest is at this juncture, which is nothing. So. Nobody's materially, materially short or long. There's just nobody in the boat at all. So what I think is that right now, quants are on it, CTAs are on it, and it's a Momo trade, but it's not necessarily uh, indicative of what the fundamental markets are saying. And that's not something that I've only noticed. Everybody's noticed that. I mean, Saudi Arabia's noticed that. They already have mentioned that. UAs already noticed that. Everybody's noticed that the paper markets are not indicative of what the fundamental markets are saying right now. And a lot of that has to do, again, with the fact that we are just seeing no participation. Perhaps that's because of, you know, margin requirements are ridiculous. Perhaps, I mean, you can... You can name a million reasons why nobody wants to participate in this market right now. The fact is, is that the paper markets are in no way indicative of the fundamental markets at this juncture. So at this point, you know, what is going on? What is Saudi Arabia? How is Saudi Arabia and UAE going to address this? Because we, we already know that they are concerned about the situation as it affects their markets as well. So kind of digress there. What was the original question? <laughs> so just kind of what risks do you, Tracy, personally feel that the market's not evaluating correctly? I know you had mentioned a few things about the EU policy um, in a recent message you had pushed out on Twitter. I think the markets are, well, it's hard to say when there's no participation in this market whatsoever. But if I were to say, you know, what what is the market looking at? Markets looking out for the fact that, you know, they think a German industry is going to completely collapse. Right. Um, Ursula came out today and said, we need to flatten the curve. That's enough to frighten everybody. Right. It's PTSD. Been there before. Then we had Schultz, who also came out and said, companies are going to have to hold off during the winter, but they'll come back. But everybody knows when companies shut down, the relative likelihood of them coming back is zero to none. Because we've already experienced this during COVID. So I think that's what's spooking in the market is that we're going to have all this demand fall off from the EU. However, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, sure, the EU is going to get hit hard, but you know that industry is going to have to move somewhere else because the demand in general is not changing. So what I think is instead of what the EU is trying to address right now is the demand problem. They're trying to curb demand when they really should be focusing on the supply problem, right? How do we increase supply instead of how do we decrease demand? But all of that demand is going to shift somewhere else. I mean, if, if you can't produce in Germany, say, anymore, or, or they want to windfall tax you in some other country, you're going to leave. You're going to go somewhere else where you have better incentives and your energy prices are so high. And so, because the demand is still there. Yeah, that makes sense, I think. Thank you, Tracy. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. I love getting getting your feedback on these all the time. Like, every time you're here, it's just a blessing. So, thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to kick this over to kind of the picture of larger systemic risks. That's been a common theme here. Uh, And often, bad decisions being pushed forward by our leaders. Oilma and Doomberg, I'd love to get your thoughts on the G7 price caps and EU embargoes. It's comical. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> know enough. what else to call it. It's it's just it's ridiculous, and it it's we'll see how it goes. But I I'll, I'll let Doomberg take it. But I, I just think it's a joke. <clears throat> um, I concur, and I think uh, you know I just put out a tweet just now. You know the the statement from the EU president on their um, their path forward is just. Um, my com- I, I took a select quote from it, and the comment under it was uh, more pain needed. Look, um, we described in last night's piece um, this this price cap. Uh, it, it, it's like 
I'll just read a quick snippet from behind our paywall here. In their delusion, the G7 leaders want to instruct half the world's population on what they should pay for property that the G7 does not itself own. Um, it's like we're sitting here with a seven deuce offsuit um, and we're the short stack at the table. And uh, we're just going to stand up and instruct every other player at the table um, how things are going to go. It, it's delusional. Um, it is a joke. Um, it's embarrassing, actually. Um, it lays bare how little the leaders of the G7 uh, understand about the international, the global, the giant market for um, energy. And um, this is a proposal that could only have been born uh, at a cocktail party um, surrounded by people who have never stepped foot uh, in the real world. Um, it is shockingly delusional. And uh, I'm still literally in disbelief that this is a thing. Um, I keep reading about it in the Financial Times and in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post. And never when I read about it, do I see any practical um, suggestions as to how this might actually work in practice. Uh, and nor do I see um, nary a thought given to the second and third order consequences of this stupidity, um, this idiocy, which is, let's just call it what it is. It is idiotic to think that Justin Trudeau can dictate to India what they should pay for Vladimir Putin's oil. Um, it's insane. It needs to be called out. It's a, a, a shocking demonstration of our utter unseriousness and um, more pain ahead. Like we need like physics is going to dictate how this is going to roll out. Um, the platitudes of the cocktail party dwellers um, and those who have only ever worked in a spreadsheet are utterly irrelevant uh, at this juncture. It's just, I, I hate to be so blunt, but um, it's the dumbest thing I've ever read. Yeah. And just to add to it, at a certain point, the G7 nations need to quit listening to teenagers. They need to quit listening to people gluing their hands to priceless works of art and actually listen to energy people. Um, it, it's, it's just so absurd what they're saying. And if they think it's going to work, it, just look at their you know, sanctions on Russia, how well that worked. The Russians legally got around most of it. So it's, it's just stupid, and uh, it's not surprising, but it, it's just comically stupid. Fair enough. So I'm going to pull this over to Josh to get your take. Doomberg and Oilmud have both said that the G7 isn't broad enough and is a joke. And the folks that are kind of constructing that price cap dealio are maybe enjoying a few too many cocktails. But kind of contrarian to that a little bit, Yellen has said that the price cap is the most effective way to impact inflation. What are your thoughts, Josh? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with uh, I'm with Doomberg and Oil Mud on this. Uh, the, I, I still haven't been able to figure out how the price cap is supposed to work, and it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense. Um, Doomberg has said a few times, so I'll quote him uh, that uh, something about leaders not being serious, um, or this is evidence of our of our th them being unserious. And I think I think it's true. I think there's really um, I think the price cap is is obviously they haven't even figured out the mechanism for it to work, and no oil market commenter that I follow uh, has been able to figure out how it's supposed to actually work. And then similarly, the EU has been talking about oil sanctions on Russia, um, and yet Russia has been exporting huge amounts of oil. Um, at one point, they were exporting materially more than they were prior uh, to the war and prior to sanctions. And so, yeah, I think, I think there's a failure of leadership. I think, unfortunately, they're not treating this very seriously. And, you know, until you start fixing the problem, uh, it just gets worse. So on that same note, uh, the White House stated that they hope China and India will join. Uh, like Josh said, Gazprom had its highest year on record. And... You know, like I said, the White House is stating that they hope China and India will join in that. But what do you think of the G7 price cap? And does this change your outlook at all? Let's kick that to Amina. Oh, just lost her there. So, Abhi, I would love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I generally agree. And, and I, I, I touched on earlier on, on, on our view of the, of the price cap. Um, um, you know, I think, you know, I think 
you know, I'll, I'll offer, you know, a little bit of a nuanced view that, uh, I mean, look, like, you know, it's no secret that, that the, the whole situation and dislocation for the last, from the last six months has, has only brought, you know, China and India and Russia closer together from, from kind of an oil trade and partnership standpoint. Um, you know, I think, you know, I think Russia has had to offer discounted crude for, you know, from a range of 10 to $30 discounts over the last six months. Um, Russia's in the process of kind of, you know, trying to secure longer term contracts, um, you know, with, with, you know, India, China, and, and also kind of other willing buyers, um, uh, you know, in, you know, in, in anticipation of, 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 you know, losing more volumes to, to Europe, um, um, which is funny because, you know, some of that volume will basically get sold to you know, different countries and then sold back to Europe, uh, in, 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 in all likelihood. Um, but, but, you know, Russia's already sort of using a discounting mechanism in the market anyway. Right. Um, I think, but, but I think the, 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 the critical point is that, um, you know, that, that these, these volumes are needed, the supply is needed, kind of given the, 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 the market balance picture. Um, that is one piece of the oil price cap, right? It, it, it is sort of designed to, um, it is designed to, uh, to, to kind of keep as much flow in the market as possible. So prices don't, um, you know, don't, don't overshoot. Um, but I think the, yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 the problem with it is, is, um, is, is getting the buy-in, um, especially from China and India. Um, I think the other problem with it is, um, is that it's not really, you know, sort of uh, factoring in, um, you know, potential retaliation uh, from, from Russia. Um, and I think, you know, you've, you've seen exactly what they've done on the gas side and, 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 and certainly a similar playbook that can be used um, on the oil product side uh, to Europe in particular, um, and I think I think that's the risk, um, um, and 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 especially for oil, uh, you know, it, it's easier to to redivert those flows. Um, it's a different story for gas, but 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 for oil, it's um, it, it's more fungible. And, and and as they kind of lock down more of these partnerships, whether it's whatever the discount is, um, it just kind of you know puts Europe in a more and more difficult spot, especially as the USSPR slowdown, um, a lot of which, you know, has made its way to Europe over the last several months. So, um, yeah. So I think it's just like, it's the mechanism is just not going to work. There's just too many ways to sort of circumvent it and, and, and make it not, um, you know, particularly effective and don't really see it having uh, much of a, uh, an impact on, on the market, on prices. Um, I think it's, I think it's, it's very much more, around macro versus, uh, you know, supply, uh, restraint and, you know, and, and potentially, you know, being further withheld by Russia and broader OPEC plus over the next six months. Thank you. I'm going to move this over to Tracy again. Can you speak a bit on your view with regards to Russia and the oil cap, uh, the oil price cap rather, given Europe's given dependency, Europe's dependency on, Russia on Russia oil? So first of all, this isn't enforceable. Other countries don't have a right to say what, other countries can do or can do not, especially if they haven't enacted sanctions. Also, um, Russia said, we're not going to sell it to countries that enact price caps. All right. And they've already figured out ways to get around these sanctions. Like if we are looking at something like maritime sanctions, right? India is already providing safety certification certificates and insurance through IRC class. And that's managed four ships by Dubai subsidiary of the Russian shipping group called Sokoma. My Russian's bad. Sokoma. Anyway, they're already they've already figured out ways around this. Their other option is, which they are already exploring, is their own benchmark. Right. So right now, Russian crude is expressed as a discount to to to, to Brent, but. They already have an oil trading platform that they can build out via RTS and MySex, and they can clear through MIR, which is the Russian version of SWIFT. And so they can circumvent sanctions by creating their own market. Also, if they really wanted to, they can opt just to cut everybody off, shut production down, raise global oil prices, and pretty much give the finger to everybody else. So price caps, 
price caps do not work. All they do is incite worse problems, in my opinion. Can I can I add something, can I add to, something this? to this? Please, yeah. Here, here you have an echo, but it's gone now. Um, let's talk about this because the one sort of thing that you read um, in the newspaper is that somehow uh, the way we will enforce this price cap is we will uh, refuse to insure the ships, um, insurance uh, of, of the uh, of the tankers. Of the tankers. Um, what do you think is, more, you think valuable? is more valuable? The oil in the tankers or the insurance that covers them? Like to think that the insurance, the insurance is somehow somehow some moat that, that we could impose our will upon the rest of the world because we currently have ninety percent market share in shipping insurance is um, the height of ignorance. It's just laughable. Um, and again, I, I can't stress this. Hundred percent agree insane. with Doomberg here. The insurance is not a problem. There are many ways to circumvent this. They've already figured out ways to circumvent this, and so I, I, I expect. As with any sanctions, I mean, take Iran, for example, we know that they don't work, right? Sanctions do not work. Iran's been selling oil on the market on and off every time we've enacted sanctions against them. And at one point, they were selling oil for gold to Turkey. So you have to understand that everything can be circumvented. To think that we can stop global trade is um, is a lot of hubris, is all I can say. All right, that's it. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good point to make. I mean, with the way globalization has taken off, not, you know, not just in recent times by any means, in the last like 50 years or longer. Uh, so I, I do want to kick back to Doomberg here, um, kind of on a point we touched a little bit on earlier with regards to being on tilt. The price caps in Europe's dependency on Russian oil and gas until 2027. What's the path forward for Europe? Is there is any at all? And, and we're going to find out very, very soon. Again, um, Europe on Tilt is actually sort of part two of a piece we wrote last week called uh, Dead of Winter. <laughs> and things move so fast over the weekend. We normally don't like to write only about energy. We try to mix in a few other things. But um, the rate of change of the news flow over the weekend was just kind of staggering. And, and the analogy we would use is we're kind of in that, you know, for those of us that were around in 08, 09, when you would wake up every Monday morning to a new uh, shotgun uh, bank merger marriage or um, uh, a forced bailout of a major uh, institution that you thought uh, that you had previously thought was iconic. Um, it, it has that feel to it. Um, and, uh, you know, we shall see. Honestly, I think markets are forward looking. Uh, long before the winter, we're going to know what the outcome will be. Um, and I would say that I would expect substantial news flow in the next two to three weeks. Um, you know, weeks, not months, certainly not months, not years. Um, this will have to be resolved at some point. Um, it, you saw this letter today of, of major CEOs of energy intense manufacturers basically telling the EU what everybody should know. Um, if we can't afford our energy and energy is the number one input into our products, we cannot afford to produce our products. Um, and so uh, we shall see. Uh, eight weeks, not months, is our prediction. Oh, my, go ahead and comment. I see your hand up. Yeah, and, and on top of it, we were joking in a space last night, but you have Chenier with their turbine issue. What if their replacement turbines need to be made in German factories with German tooling? Like, how does that work? Where, where does this end? It, the irony of it. But it's the manufacturing and stuff, it's... I think it's going to get really bad. So I uh, just wanted to add on to that. Thank you. I And kind of on that same line of thinking, Josh, can you speak a bit about the idea that Europe is facing a Lehman Brothers event uh, as energy companies face, what was it, $1.5 trillion in margin calls and the new round of energy stimulus in places like the UK and EU? I'm curious your thoughts there, Josh. Yeah, um, I think... I mean, maybe it's a Lehman event or maybe it's a Bear Stearns event. Um, but I think I think it makes sense to think about it in that sort of um, crisis systemic risk framework. And I think the important thing and I've been highlighting this for a little while, but I think I think these are likely to get a lot bigger and become a lot more important and maybe even come to the U.S. and other countries that have been less affected. I think there's going to be substantial uh, stimulus payments, 
uh, to consumers. I think there's going to be uh, governments uh, socializing the losses for energy companies. Um, there is a risk that they socialize profits from producers and power generators, which might just sort of extend the crisis and, um, you know, prevent the solving of the problem. But yeah, I think it definitely makes sense to think about it in that context. I think the governments, they're not really on board in terms of long-term solutions. And unfortunately, uh, I think they're still misdiagnosing the problem. Um, but they are ready with the COVID era solution of just writing very, very large checks repeatedly. And so I would expect even more than they've already announced, maybe by an order of magnitude or two. And I think they just, at least from a Europe perspective, throw money at the problem and address some of the aspects of the problem through that. Thank you so much, Josh. Abi, I'd love your ideas as well on, you know, the the potential path forward or even just the changes that the average retail investor or consumer may face in the oncoming energy crisis. Kind of going full circle to our original question earlier. Yeah, um, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're, you've seen you know, numerous examples of this. I think, um, you know, here in the U.S., we, you know, we're getting hit like every day with, with, um, uh, you know, with an update on, on where gasoline prices are, are going. Um, and it's been a pretty staggering fall, but there's, but there's so many other issues, right? There's, I mean, there's a housing crisis, there's a rent crisis, there are, you know, you know, you know, kind of, you know, higher for longer food um, uh, uh, price issues. Um, and, 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 and these are not going to go away anytime soon. Um, and, you know, and, and we haven't really even talked much about, nobody's really talked much about, you know, kind of the impact of higher, you know, gas prices here in the U S, um, and the knock-on effects of that. It's not going to be anywhere close to, 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 to your, to Europe size impact, but, but it does have knock-on effects. Right. Um, and then, you know, but then if you just kind of look overseas internationally, I mean, I think, um, you know, just just over the weekend, you know, you had you know, the Unilever CEO saying, "Yeah, inflation's not over; the worst is ahead. So we're gonna just have to keep raising prices for like you know, a whole host of consumer products, and um, and 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 that's going to continue. Um, that that um, you know, kind of knock on effect of, of 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 higher gas, higher power, electricity prices. Um, just just yeah, and then what you're really seeing back to kind of the original topic is. You're just seeing, you know, different regions kind of outbid other regions for, for whatever energy there is available, right? Whether it's gas or coal or whatnot. Um, and this is like the, the, this is, you know, the European crisis, um, you know, what, 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 you know, part of what they're doing is they're just taking energy supply away from, from Asia, whether it's gas and, you know, even coal. Um, and that's resulting in crises in, in places like Pakistan and um, other parts of Southeast Asia and whatnot. So, so, you know, all of this is just like, you know, it's just going to sort of, you know, fester for a while um, in different ways in different parts of the world uh, for different products, uh, whether it's food or, you know, other you know, manufactured goods or whatnot. Um, really, it's going to be, you know, sort of uh, uh, across many products. I think that's the issue for the consumer. Um, and yeah, and, and, and I think that's, that's why kind of the, 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 the macro picture is, is so difficult. Like, you know, and again, no amount of, you know, kind of stimulus and subsidies and, you know, and, and, and wage hikes, which are already kind of slowing down, um, is, is, you know, are able to sort of keep up with, 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 with the pace of, of that cost inflation. Um, so it's, it's, it's a pretty challenging picture. Thank you. So I, I do want to open this final question to the panel. Uh, anybody and everybody, feel free to chime in. What is the current path forward for consumers? What should they be doing given the potential structural inflation, higher prices, increased volatility, and the lack of long-term government thought in a slow response that we've all grown accustomed to? What's the path forward for consumers? I bought a wood-burning stove, and I'm here in Texas, so that's my confidence in the government and the grid and everything this winter. So that's just wood-burning stove and to keep the house warm in case because we don't have the labor to fix stuff if we have a statewide freeze again. So it, it could get nasty real quick. Doomberg, how are you feeling? I think it depends where you are. Um, I'm unabashedly and have said on several occasions that uh, we are uh, – committed to the preparedness mindset and that um, personal sovereignty begins in the home. And so like uh, all not, we have um, thought through the 
consequences of, of potentially losing some of the goods and services that we take for granted in the operation of our homes. And um, it doesn't mean that we're sort of, you know, orders out of the, you know, uh, with uh, a, a cavalry of arms to protect it, but um, we do ponder um, the things that we need. Um, increasing your personal working capital uh, inventory at the home is both an insurance policy and a nice um, moderate hedge against inflation. Um, but, you know, if you're in Europe, it's a whole different story. Here in the U.S., I think we'll be fine. Um, so, yeah, my, my whole thought is, you know, it, personal responsibility, um, the key word uh, is responsibility. Um, and so I think everyone's responsible for their own well-being and the well-being of their families. And to the extent that um, you don't trust the government, then, um, you know, pulling out a few hedges is not the worst thing. Um, the analogy we often give is... Um, we, we spend on house insurance, uh, home insurance every year. And uh, at the end of the year, when the house hasn't burned down, we don't bemoan the money that we spent uh, insuring against that tail risk. And um, having a little bit of uh, excess working capital of the consumables that you need to successfully operate your home on hand, uh, within reach, uh, under your own roof, uh, is never a bad thing, um, especially in an inflationary environment where the return on that uh, increased investment in working capital uh, is pretty decent. Thank you, Josh. Thank do you have Josh, any additional thoughts? Oh, Tracy, I saw you were ready to go. I'm sorry. <laughs> Is the echo better? I'm outside now. It's still, still there, still I think. There. Oh, yep. I'm sorry. All right. Well, I was hoping it was better. But anyway, to kind of expand on that, what I think is that we as the public, as consumers, uh, want to focus on us. I think that if we want to change things and we want to stand up for rights and what we need to start at the local level instead of trying to attack from the top, like attack at the, the federal government. I think what we need to do is start with your you know, your local neighborhood, then your city, then your state. And kind of bring bring rights back to your state rather than the federal government. And, you know, attack things in an organic uh, way rather than attacking the federal government. That that makes sense. Because the federal governments across the world are making incredibly huge mistakes. And we all know this. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out, right? Or an economist. Um, and the way we can make a difference, I think, is just by um, starting local and growing that organically. So I hope that makes sense and that gives some people hope. <laughs> hey, we all need a little bit of hope for sure. Josh, kicking it over to you here, tail end. What are your thoughts here? What can, uh, what can the common folk do to kind of weather this out, to kind of prepare? What can retail investors do? So I, I like oil and gas stocks here, and I know that's not a sort of a prepper approach. And I think, you know, it makes sense to have supplies on hand. Uh, there was just an announcement of a request for uh, power consumption reduction in California yesterday because of a risk of blackouts. And so, you know, it's nice to have a power generator and so on. But I think I think there's a real risk that we end up with substantial inflation driven by my view on likely uh, way higher stimulus than I think people are expecting. And you know, we saw some big announcements recently, but I think they end up even bigger. And I think we end up with uh, direct subsidies and stimuluses that are paid to consumers in the US and other countries. Um, and so I, I like oil and gas stocks because I think that they're very undervalued and they also give upside directly to um, to sort of the inputs uh, that are that are scarce, and that's not financial advice. People should consult an advisor, but I, I like them here. Thank you so much, Abby. Any final thoughts on that topic at all? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, I think I think Doomberg and, and and the rest of the, the the panel laid it out well. I think consumers just need to sort of you know kind of reallocate, reprioritize because the cost of you know most if not everything is going up and it just depends on where you are um and consumers have been adjusting already right over the last several months um you've heard it from retailers you've heard it from you know various companies in the discretionary spend space um consumers have been adjusting you just you, like there's just no way for consumers to be able to keep up with 
um, you know, with 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 the uh, you know higher cost of everything. Um, so you you kind of you know focus on 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 what you can what you can uh, uh, afford, even though even though it's more expensive, and prioritize that and. Um, and, and then kind of just resharpen the the the, the discretionary um, spend basket uh, to 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 what makes sense. Um, yeah, from an investment standpoint, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I, I, not not to recommend any sectors or stocks or anything like that, but you know, I, I think in the energy space, as as you know, the the the, the topic of the the discussion is um, energy is um, is a staple. It's it's not you know really a discretionary spend. Energy and and and, and power um, and um, it, you know, scarcity of supply kind of across the energy spectrum is, is going to last for years. Um, and there's going to be a lot of volatility and it's going to manifest its way itself in, in different ways. Um, but yeah, but, but, but for suppliers, for producers, um, you know, they are generally going to be in charge and, and are going to be, uh, you know, the, the ones kind of benefiting from, from this dynamic, even, even if we get, even if we have this kind of recessionary kind of macro soft patch and come back, um, you know, no matter sort of how that 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 chop and that cycle looks, um, it, it, it's going to be a you know it's going to be producers in charge for a while. So I'll just leave it at that. Thank you so much. And on that note, I think we can wrap this bad boy up. Thank you all for coming. Before we do end the space here, I do want to hear y'all's final thoughts. And I would love for you to plug anything you're working on, any newsletters, anything you got going on. So let's start off with Doomberg here. Any final thoughts? And please, please plug anything you got going on. I appreciated the time. It was a fun discussion. Uh, Doomberg.substack.com is uh, where you'll find all of our pieces. We publish um, six to eight pieces a month. Um, primary focus is energy, but we, we cover crypto, single stocks, uh, a few other you know, geopolitics occasionally. I uh, really appreciated it and uh, looking forward to the next one. Thanks. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Oil Mud, any last thoughts, things to plug? Uh, yeah, just just don't expect a big jump in American oil and gas production. Uh, I don't see it happening anytime soon, and I, I appreciate you having me on and look forward to doing it again. Thank you much, man. It was a pleasure. Josh, final thoughts, anything to plug? Uh, nope. Thanks for having me on. Thank you much. Abi. Nothing, nothing in particular. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to the next one. And uh, yeah, you can just, you know, hit me up anytime. Happy to, to discuss any and all things energy. And always happy to have you, man. Thanks for coming. Everybody listening, for those of you who came in late, this was recorded. It'll be popped up on the same link you joined in. It'll also be cleaned up with all the tech issues that I had per usual there at the beginning and posted as an Unusual Whales podcast on Spotify and Apple Pod. Follow everybody up here to stay up to date on all things energy. I can't thank all of you enough for coming. If you're not following these folks, you really, really should be. Moving forward, we've got an upcoming CPI space next Wednesday. We'll have a lot of great panelists for that as well, so stay tuned. Until then, thank you all for coming once again, and we'll catch you on the next one next week. Thank you, everybody. Take care. <laughs>